Good morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Davis, Eves, and Ivy families and what we just celebrated with the baptism of their babies. We pray that as they grow, all three of those children will cling to you and will confess that they are not their own, but belong body and soul to you, that you are their and our only hope in life and death. Thank you, as we just promised, that we have the privilege of reminding Houston, Virginia, and James of that life-saving news in the years to come. Thank you that your hands, the hands of the king, are the hands of a healer. We pray for healing for Jess Rutledge as he recovers from a recent surgery. Thank you for being our burden bearer. We pray that you would bear the burdens of the Wade family with the passing of Brian's mom. We praise you that you are making all things new and there will be a death to death. Father, don't let us leave our missions festival from a couple of weeks ago unchanged. As we prayed before, galvanize us with your gracious vision for our whole body, our neighbors, and the nations. To that end, Lord, we pray for our faith promise giving, that we would honor you, knowing that you don't need our money, but we need to give it. Now, Lord, make your gospel reverberate as Josh preaches. Through the power of your love, may we be unconformed to the lying, to the squeezing vanities of this world. Transform us, Holy Spirit, so that our loves and our fears are reordered, so that, as Abby Lee said in her Lenten devotional yesterday, we would be satisfied with you for who you are and not just for the temporal benefits you give, and so that we would be joyfully committed followers of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. It's a joy as always to be able to preach and be here with you guys. Um, Early this morning, I realized why Robbie was not preaching today. My alarm went off far too early. And it was not because he didn't want to preach this text. It was because he knew that today was daylight savings and it was going to come hard. And it did. It did come hard. There are some of you who walked in 30 minutes ago thinking you were late for Sunday school, but you made it for worship, and I'm glad you're here. So what can be wet and dry at the same time? Heard a few answers. Um, Or uh, another one, what is a box without hinges, key, or lid? Yet golden treasure inside is hid. I think I heard the right answer out there. Or one of my personal favorite lines, what do I have in my pocket? Well, if I were Bilbo Baggins, the answer would be the one ring. But I'm Josh and it's just pocket lint. So we all love riddles. I particularly love riddles, these turns of phrase and this kind of weird use of language that kind of puts things in really clever ways that kind of hides a very simple answer. The answer to the first, what can be wet and dry at the same time, is a towel. Ah. And the other one, if you've read The Hobbit, you know that a box without hinges, lid, 
or when I was ago, uh, hinges, key, or lid, yet golden treasure inside is his. That's an egg. I think I heard the right answer over here. We love little things that are turns of phrases that kind of hide a simple truth. And we love to decipher and discern what they are. They're clever and it makes us feel pretty good when we get the answer right. Well, sometimes when we're reading in the scriptures and particularly in the gospels, we can read some of Jesus' sayings and we can think that they're like riddles. That as long as we figure out the kind of the clever inside information, then we'll know and then we'll be able to kind of live more faithfully. Well, starting in Mark chapter 8, verse 31... Jesus, after Peter confesses that he's the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus then begins to explain to the disciples what that means. And the disciples start to think that it might be a riddle. See, Jesus explains the Messiah must suffer and die and be raised on the third day. And the disciples are like, okay, clearly he doesn't mean that. So what does he mean? And they start to try to figure out what all of it is saying. And in the next couple of chapters, we realize they don't get it. And here in our text, it's just before the third and final time that Jesus lays down what it means for him to be the Messiah and the King, the anointed one. And here in three living pictures, we see that the disciples don't get it. We also see that there's another man who's running up to Jesus thinking that he has the clever answer, but neither does he get it. Jesus is telling us what's true and he's saying it in simple, straightforward terms that we don't have to try to decipher. There's no hidden clue in the middle. The very last line of our passage is this, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus wants to upend what we think we know is right and to teach us the way of the cross and the way of discipleship. And he wants to do so by wrecking all of our preconceived notions. And so he's gonna take us through in this text and teach us the very difficult simplicity of the kingdom. So before we get to that, let's read, let's read Mark 10, uh, our passage, and then we'll pray together and jump in. So Mark 10, starting in verse 13, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. 
disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we come before you now. We're seated at your feet, clothed and in our right mind. Please teach us. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see Jesus clearly. Move all of the things that are in our lives that have wrapped themselves around us out of the way so that we might cling to Jesus, to hold fast to him and to be changed into his likeness. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen. So Jesus is not trying to give you some kind of clever riddle. He's trying to teach us the difficult simplicity of the kingdom. And in each of these interactions, I think you saw there's three very specific interactions that Jesus has in this passage while he's on the way. Each one of them shows us a new layer of just how difficult yet simple the kingdom of God really is. Jesus is on his way from Galilee to Jerusalem. So the whole context of what we're talking about is the way of the cross. Jesus is preparing himself and his disciples for Jerusalem, for the Holy Week, for the time when he's going to enter in as the true anointed king and he's going to suffer at the hands of wicked men and be killed and on the third day rise again. That's the context. That's where we're going. And he's trying to teach us what that way is like as we follow him. And so the first interaction, what I want us to see is a very maddening juxtaposition of importance. A maddening juxtaposition of importance. Notice what's happening here. He just spent some time, we heard last week, teaching on marriage and divorce. And so now we come to this moment where there's lots of little children. The means by which God proves his faithfulness across generations is through being faithful to parents and their children and their children after them. And so here we have this interaction and, and here's what's happening. You can see it in the very first verse. They were bringing 
this sense of kind of ongoing, continual bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them, that he might take them in his arms and bless them. So what we have are tons of parents of little, little children. Luke calls them infants. And so parents of little babies and of toddlers who can't really speak, who are babbling, who have stains all over them from food and mud, and they're bringing them to Jesus so that he could wrap them up in his arms and bless them and speak the life-giving words that he has to offer over them. This mo- the moment that we had just a minute ago in the sacrament is a, a very helpful picture. It's helpless parents bringing helpless children to Jesus that he might love them and care for them. Now, if you have been around tiny babies and toddlers, I have for a while, you'll know what that means. What happens with a baby? There's There's two things going on when you grab a baby from someone. There is one part joy and one part fear. The joy is, look at their cute face. The fear is, why are they opening their mouth? Because they're going to spit up on you. Or there might be a diaper that has been a little too full for a little too long. And it's going to leak on you. One part joy and one part fear. Where here's the situation. Jesus is being brought all of these babies that are spitting up on him. That they're, whatever they're using for diapers, cloth diapers. We tried that. (laughs) Keyword tried. Um, Are spilling out onto him and he loves it. He loves every moment. He loves every time this baby burps and something comes out onto his tuning. He loves it. And on the other side are his disciples who have a complete misunderstanding of worth and importance in the kingdom of God. They've been following Jesus for a little while now, and they've seen some amazing things. And so they're standing with Jesus and they recognize they're on the way to Jerusalem. And they, based on their conversations in Mark, are starting to feel pretty good about themselves. They're already arguing who's the best, who's the greatest of this whole crew. Their understanding of importance has a whole lot to do with their outward show of worth. So they're looking at these parents who were dirty, bringing children who were dirtier to Jesus for blessing, and they hate it. We have way more important things to do. We have way more important things to see. And so you read in the text, it's one sentence. They were bringing children, these parents and maybe even older siblings, bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. The same thing that Jesus did to the chaotic sea in Mark 4 and to the demons in Mark 5. He rebuked them because he's the powerful king over all things. The disciples rebuke these parents and these children because they think that they're powerful over little things. It is a terrible exercise of kingdom power. And I want you to look at Jesus' response. Mark does not shy away from emotion in his gospel. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. See, the disciples had made a value judgment on the kingdom. They had made a value judgment on who should be brought near to Jesus. Little children who were helpless and in the Roman world in that time didn't have a whole lot of worth. They were only thought of as not adults yet. 
And especially if you were a female child, you had even less worth than a male child. At least a male child was an heir and a potential worker in that culture. They had made a similar cultural value judgment on little things, and Jesus is furious. Now, why do you think that Jesus was angry? Sometimes, I will admit it, I get angry. And Liz, my wonderful wife, praise the Lord for sanctification, will look at me and she will say, hey, you are angry and you need to deal with that. And I'll go, I'm not angry. I'm frustrated. And she's like, that's the same thing. We all know what it's like to feel a little angry. What Jesus is feeling is holy, righteous indignation because people to whom the kingdom belongs are being barred from coming into his presence. Helpless people who know their helplessness want to be with Jesus and the disciples who think they're important are barring the way and that makes Jesus angry. Interestingly, this is also why it makes him mad. In just a few verses, look at how the sea parts metaphorically for a very important person. See, the parents with these children were trying to get into Jesus's space so that he could touch the child or or children. But then a few verses later, a very important wealthy young ruler approaches Jesus and the sea parts and he's right at Jesus' feet. This is not the way of the kingdom and that's what makes Jesus angry. And so he tells them, let the little children come to me. Let them come and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. My gracious and good reign belongs to them. Now it'd be wrong to think it belongs to them because they're naive or they're um, able to, you know, not have some sort of like thing going on in their heart where they kind of get it and adults don't get it. No, the reason that it belongs to them is because they are helpless. They know that they're helpless. I have tiny children. Kuiper, who's one years old, just turned one this week. He is helpless and all he does is scream because he doesn't know words and he's primarily needy for food. He is a vacuum. Holden, the next oldest, is terribly needy and all he wants to do is be held. And so he walks around like this following you everywhere you go. That is to whom the kingdom belongs. It is people who have a posture of heart that says, I have nothing and I need the one who has everything. So are you pursuing Jesus in that way? Are you looking to Jesus as the king, as the one who has all things to whom you owe everything? Are you looking at him and reaching out for him like a little 18-month-old toddler is reaching out to be held? Or, similar to my own heart, are you a lot more like the disciples who are very ready to set up some boundaries so that we can have a really good ministry event? So that we can have a really good thing where all the people are able to glean something from the teaching and go back and put it into practice. They can't glean anything if they've got babies screaming in their ear. How many of us have that posture towards the kingdom of God where some get to participate and some have to wait to be in Jesus' presence? Jesus would have none of it. 
So what he does in this brief moment is he invites us to reshape our attitude and invites us to an attitude of littleness. See, Jesus redefines what importance means in the kingdom. We like to portray outward importance. We're gonna see it in a minute. And what Jesus values and deems worthy are people who have no outward worth whatsoever. Let the children come to me. Because God delights to give the kingdom to people who have no claim on it. And so Jesus experiences this maddening juxtaposition of importance with his disciples. He had this indignant anger and he lets them know and he picks up these children and he blesses them. And then the very next scene we go and we see that the sea parts for this very important person. And, and that leads us to the second thing in the text. I want us to see the very disheartening realization of lack. The disheartening realization of lack. And so after this moment, Jesus is on the way. He's on his journey to the cross. The cross, the cruciform life is shaping this whole narrative. So he's on the way and this very awesome dude runs up and kneels to him. Mark just describes him as someone, a man runs up to Jesus. I want to spend a minute understanding who this is because I think a lot of us might see him in the mirror. So here he is. This man runs up and kneels at Jesus' feet. You could almost hear the panting breath. He has to get into Jesus' presence to ask him a very important question. The man's posture is one of humility. He calls Jesus a good teacher, a, a very unique sign of deference. He has a posture of humility. He asks a great question. And as the interaction unfolds, you can tell he's very, very zealous for the law of God. He has set his life to obeying God's word, to living well and wisely. He's earnest and sincere and righteous. And he's come to Jesus to know, what else must I do? He has set his life to good works. And even in some of Jesus' language, you can tell that he's, with his wealth and finances, he's not done so and gained them immorally. He's actually stewarded them well. He's not some rogue figure. To put it in modern terms, he's someone who's really faithful in church, pretty active in Sunday school, really works hard to honor the Ten Commandments in the way in which they live, and yet their true love is not the Lord, but their true love is the thing that the Lord has given them. And so here he is in this interaction, this man, and what Jesus wants to do is lovingly expose his heart. Everything about him outwardly expresses that he is blessed of God, that he is receiving God's favor and blessing. So outwardly, it would seem of all people, he's in. God definitely likes this guy, he's in. And Jesus wants to expose our hearts because ultimately this guy's totally misunderstood the reality of the kingdom, the difficult simplicity of the kingdom. So here's the exchange. He says, good teacher, what else must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is like, 
Hold your horses. Let's just hold on a second. Good? Do you know what good means? In one phrase, Jesus has pierced into his heart and he's sized him up and knows exactly what's going on. See, this man has conflated his pursuit of righteousness and his external rewards for being in God's favor. He's read it backwards. He thinks that his life of righteousness has earned him a right into the kingdom. And so he's come to Jesus, potentially, yes, eager and zealous and desiring to have eternal life, but he's also come for affirmation. Lord, I've done, I've done all kinds of stuff. I've done all the law. I've kept it from my youth. I've been honorable. What else do I need to do? Is there another thing just to make sure? I need some assurance. What else do I need to do? And Jesus is like, you need not do anything because you lack the one thing you need. Now imagine hearing that. People who have a whole lot. This wealthy young man, the, the words used of him, it could mean like just cash, can mean wealth from lands, like properties, real estate. In every single mode of, of determining wealth, he has it. And Jesus says, yeah, but you lack something. So he invites him. Go, sell it all, give to the poor, then you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. In that line, Jesus has looked at his heart and he said, you have fallen in love with God's blessing rather than with God. You have fallen in love with security and comfort and assurance rather than with the Lord of life. So I, uh, the shout out to the youth. Went on winter retreat in January. Any youth in here? They're asleep. This is for you. Uh, I did a deep dive on uh, boa constrictors. And it is fascinating. Also, you're about to go down a four-hour-long YouTube rabbit hole that is wild. Okay? So, has anybody ever seen anything about a boa constrictor? Well, I'm going to teach you how it is that boa constrictors get their prey. So here's what a very large Amazonian snake, boa constrictor, python does. First, it waits. It becomes like the environment. And then as a very helpless prey comes along, it uses its very large head and mouth and it latches on to the prey. Now its teeth are like fish hooks. So when it latches, it kind of pulls, locking its teeth into the meat of the prey. Then once it's got that lock, it just slowly uses its huge, powerful body and it first grabs your limbs. It grabs the arms and the legs and it just wraps them. And then it gets the rest of its body and it wraps around the vital organs and just slowly squeezes until it breaks the bones, shatters the insides, making everything nice and soft so it can down the hatch. This is exactly why it is difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
wealth in particular can be seen like it's the blessing and favor of God. And they can be a very gracious gift of God, but it can also be the very thing that wraps itself around our hearts and squeezes until we are dead and lifeless. It wraps assurance, security, comfort, and ease. It wraps around our hearts until we have nothing left and we can't see Jesus clearly. We definitely can't see our need and our helplessness. That's what's happening with this poor man. Jesus is looking at him so intently and he loves him because he knows the grip that this thing has on him. And he says, you lack one thing. You can't do this by yourself. You lack one thing. So give all of this stuff away. Do the work of slowly unpeeling this python and come follow me. And here's the trick to getting a python off of you. If I asked you how to get a python off, you might say, well, grab the head, get the head off, and then you can slip out, right? Wrong. To get a python off, you have to slowly work to uncoil the body. Because if you try to pull the head off, remember its teeth are like fish hooks. It just goes deeper and deeper into the meat until you can't get out of it. You have to slowly unwrap your love of your own security You have to slowly unwrap your love of your comfortable life. You have to slowly unwrap the assurance that all those gifts have given you that you're okay with God until you finally get to the head, which is your own pride, my pride, my self-importance. And you have to shove the head back into the skin to release the teeth off of you. That's what Jesus is inviting us to do as his people. He's saying, Anything that's wrapped itself around your heart, the thing that you love, the thing that you would die for, give it up and then come follow me on my way. Come and find true life with me. And I think it has to be said as well, many of us, myself included, in bringing our children to Jesus, when we're praying for them, we often want them to be the rich young ruler. We're actively asking the Lord to let our children be the rich young ruler in their lives. And that is a very dangerous thing to pray. Because children who become the rich young ruler are blind to their need of the Savior. We as a body have to model our need for the Savior so that children from baby to 18 and older can know deeply their need of a Savior. Instead of praying for them to be the rich young ruler who goes away from Jesus sorrowful because he had much possessions, let's pray that we would teach our children the difficult simplicity of the kingdom, that the first will be last and the last first. Instead of sacrificing them in the tyranny of things, let's sacrifice the things for the grace of and life of the kingdom. Which is exactly what Jesus offers in the very last interaction. I wanted to give, go to you briefly with it. In the last interaction Jesus has with his disciples, he looks around at them and he, he wants to show them the very astonishing possibility of true life. See, the disciples are incredulous. They have no idea what to think. 
They live their whole lives thinking that the wealthy in God's kingdom are, are, are experiencing his blessing and favor. And so what Jesus is saying here goes against the grain of everything they've thought. They thought that you could have your cake and eat it too. And Jesus is saying that is not the way of the kingdom. And so he offers them the astonishing possibility of true life. And he goes through this interaction and he's teaching them. It's very difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom. And they're amazed at that. And then he says, children, how difficult it is, period, to enter the kingdom. And at that, they're exceedingly astonished. They don't know what to do. And they're out there without a rope, it seems. They don't have any footing. And so Peter asks the right question. Then who can be saved? I pray that all of us at some point in our lives will get to the end of ourselves and ask that question. Who can be saved if I can't do it on my own? If people who seem to have it together can't do it on their own, then who can? Because it's then that we'll find the possibility of true life in the immense grace of the king. And he says, that's the exact right question. Jesus looks at them in the same way, same verb as he looked at the young ruler. He looks at them intently and he says, you can't do it. It's impossible with man, but all things are possible with God. When you commit yourself, all of who you are, to the way of Jesus and to following him, you find the grace of God and true life. It hits you hard with joy. And so Peter, I love Peter, he's like, Jesus! We left it all. See, we left it all to follow you. Clinging, looking for assurance. And Jesus gives him some of the greatest assurance that's been balm to my soul for many, many years. Jesus says, if you give up anything, and there are many of us who've had to give up family. If you give up mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, children and lands, For the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the good news, the good news that there's a king who's brought a kingdom who on his way to the cross died in the place of helpless people so that in him we might become the righteousness of God so that we might be brought into the kingdom and granted eternal life. When you do that for his sake and for the sake of the gospel and the good news, you receive a hundredfold. Don't read that wrongly and think that if you invest the right way, God might let your stocks go up or your 401k increase or your your pay scale go up. What he's saying is if you look around the room, you can do it. Look around the room at each other in the eyes. In this room right now, I have access. We have access to hundreds of homes and hundreds of dining tables. I have access to spiritual mothers and fathers who can teach me the way of Jesus. I have access to brothers and sisters in Christ and other children that are not my own that I get to participate in raising in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Right here in this room is the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus is making right here. In the church today, here and in every place, Jesus is fulfilling this promise over and over again. A hundredfold, a hundredfold now in this time. When you come to him, you 
we'll find it's a very astonishing reality that we get granted true life today and eternal life to come. So friends, it's not a riddle. The difficult simplicity of the kingdom is that the first will be last and the last first. It's difficult because it's hard for us to hate what we have. But it's simple because when you see Jesus, you realize that we have nothing and in him we have all things. So come. As Jesus says, come and follow me. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. We thank you for its conviction and for its comfort. Lord Jesus, you've given us lots of gifts. You've given gifts to men, both physical and spiritual, and so we recognize those, and we ask you that as we come to this table that we would recognize that all of those things are but dross. We can count them as worthless for the sake of knowing you. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray for any this morning who might be disheartened. Help them not to go away sorrowful, but to come to taste and see that you are good, to believe on you for the first time or to believe in you anew. Restore our faith, nourish us with yourself. We pray this in your name. Amen.